What you're about to hear is Earth's Forbidden Secrets, Part 4. Angus and I sat back down to record the next chapter. This one was recorded a few weeks ago. These ones are bankers in between the excellent interviews that we have coming up. And we were talking about the rain. And as I sit here and record this, the rain is returning. The environment's an interesting one. I don't really want to get into it right now because it doesn't pertain to this episode. However, interesting things seem to be happening. We're really enjoying doing this book, Angus and I. It's uh, an escape for us both and we really hope you guys are enjoying it as much as we're enjoying doing it. For the video portion of this podcast, this is actually the new setup and you guys can see the refinery properly. So look that up on YouTube. I am going to expand those platforms in the very near future. I don't have much more apart from to just show some gratitude. Gratitude to you, the listener. Gratitude to the awesome guests that we've had on recently and the ones that are coming up. This is a very cool thing that I get to do and I'm stoked that you guys enjoy listening to it. I think Rowdy's the order of the day. Not too sure which ones, however, let's uh, see how we go. The chaos continues. Please look after yourselves. Please be kind, be cool, stay safe, be disciplined, and we'll talk soon. Cheers.
Mate. Hey, how you going? Good, man. How are you? I'm bloody wonderful. Yourself? Oh, mate, not too bad. It's chaos is continuing to rain down, literally in our case. Literally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> lovely little morning to wake up to a flooded backyard yeah, that's again. Right. Again. That's um, right. Storms yeah. kicking off at about 3 a.m. Yeah, that was great. That was awesome. Australian, southeast Queensland weather. Yeah, subtropical. Uh, you know, not weather. like last week we had enough flooding. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Brisbane River's running at 15 metres or something like that. Yeah. yeah Ground yeah, is yeah. saturated. Yeah. It only takes 20 mil to bloody yeah. to flood everything all over again. Yeah. But, mate, for those that are looking on the video, we have another upgrade, 1080p, man. Did you notice? We've, we've yeah. gone from 720 to 1080. And we've, we've switched it again so you can take in the refinery. Uh, and awesome, man. I'm excited. Me too. Me too. So what are we doing tonight again? Again? What are we doing? Forbidden Secrets 4, mate. Earth's Forbidden Secrets. But we're going to start with some articles like we have been doing uh, recently. And oh, where's my where's my magic little book here, mate? I better get that because uh, that's got all the information in it. So you write it down. Do we not dual screen now? No, we can. I, oh. I was just checking to see whether it was there. Oh, okay, cool. I was just making sure. Yeah. Um, okay. <clears throat> so the first one. So again, picked some articles off the page and. Uh, the boys, that, the most boys that liked them the most, uh, that's who we went with. That's the articles we went with, with one we just wanted to touch on as well. Oh, no, these two are the popular ones. I'm looking at forward notes. Shh, secret scroll stuff. Just Can't talk ta- one step at a time. One brother. step at a time. One step at a time. So thanks to Jock Spencer uh, Riccio, who's just had a baby boy, mate. So congratulations. Congratulations, Riccio. All right. That's awesome, man. Uh, John and Shane have gave us an article astrophysicists propose earth may be alive and have a mind of its own so i th- we had to look at that one let's have a geese we had to man we love to gander down this garden path but we're going to make sure we share screen well, this consciousness time. is a you know it's a deep it's a deep subject mm-hmm. and look the I, I believe the earth is alive man so it'd be interesting if we're using science to well um, it is in a certain it's like which part Mm, you'll yeah. like it. I've I've the read biome. this. I've read this. You'll like it. Let's do it. All right. Jump into it. Astrophysicist propose Earth may be alive and have a mind of its own by Paul Seaburn. I'm pretty sure Paul's been on the JRE. That's not the first time I've heard his name. Um, there are those who believe that the Earth is hollow and inside are subterranean beings surviving somehow despite many scientific proofs that this is impossible. Now comes a group of scientists who propose that Earth itself is alive. A Terranian being with a mind of its own. I like that. Terranian? It is Terranian. Terranian. Yeah. Terranian? Dude, let's run with Terranian. I like Terranian stands better. Let's let's do Terranian. You are right, it is Terranian, but yeah. Anyway. No. Uh, If this is true. (coughs) Cough button. (laughs) It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work, no. (laughs) If, <laughs> if this is true it's a lo-fi version sorry well, no man. in the audio i can take it out if this ah, is yeah. true do we really want to know what it thinks of the beings taking such poor care of it while tramping over it with their smelly feet that's a fair question if the collective activity of life known as the biosphere can change the world could the collective activity activity of cognition and action based on this cognition also change a planet once the biosphere evolved earth took on a life of its own if a planet with life has a life of its own 
can it also have a mind of its own? I mean, yes, I think so. I mean, you only mm. got to think about the plants that go bitter. They talk to each other. You know what I mean? Like there's all mm. that sort of stuff. Yeah. So could the, the collective consciousness of the biome possibly be considered the mind of the earth? Yeah. And what, at what point do we say is it intelligent? I mean, I've mm. seen my trees out the back here kill other trees to save other trees. That's giving those trees a lot of power. Exactly. Mm. You know what I mean? They're self-selecting out there. Are you sure? Pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> I wanna... No, no, fair enough. All right. Yes, this theory presented in the International Journal of Astrobiology by astrophysicists from the University of Rochester sounds like the plots of a number of science fiction novels and movies, but lead author Adam Frank, professor of physics and astronomy at the University of Rochester and his colleagues, present the kind of evidence and logic that pseudoscientists only dream about. Well, this is us, mate. We, that, that's we what, are the pseudoscientists. That's what we'd be considered. Of course we are. Yeah. Uh, to illustrate how plant species can operate collectively to display planetary intelligence, they point to forests where tree roots connect via underground networks to fungi to move nutrients through the forest to help areas under stress. If a forest can collectively self-maintain, can a planet? You would think so. We don't yet have the ability to communally respond in the best interest of the planet. There is intelligence on Earth, but there isn't planetary intelligence. Like a good teacher, Frank sees potential, but we have a long way to go. Not surprisingly, he uses climate change to illustrate the immature technosphere stage Earth and every living and non-living thing on it compromise. Okay, sorry, I read that wrong. Not surprisingly, he uses climate change to illustrate the immature technosphere stage, I think it should be of Earth and every living thing and non-living thing on it compromised. That doesn't make sense. Anyway. It's, it's comprise. Comprise. Not compromise. Oh, it is comprise. But Jeez. still that, to a good start tonight. But still it I, doesn't really fit. Doesn't. You are, mate. Flying start is making me feel great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Set the bar low. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hopefully I can That's right. Then we can only go up from here. <laughs> There's a lot of big words in this one, though. No, it? you're right. Yeah. There is. The technosphere, our human-created and managed interlinked systems of communication, transportation, technology, electricity, and computers. Yeah. Is not chew that down. Yeah, chew that down. Is not integrated into Earth systems. The atmosphere, the oceans, and the underground plates, etc. Why? The current technosphere is working against the Earth systems, which will ultimately destroy these systems, which destroy all species on Earth. That's not exactly a sign of intelligence of any kind. Fortunately, the Earth has shown promise. The biosphere figured out how to host life by itself billions of years ago by creating systems for moving around nitrogen and transporting carbon. Now we have to figure out how to have the same kind of self-maintaining characteristics within the tech within with the technosphere. Is the earth alive? By Frank's definition, yes. Does it have a mind of its own? No, but that's not earth's fault. Like any good collective, it needs help from us to begin figuring out how to achieve maturity. Humans develop more biosphere aiding rather than biosphere destroying systems would help. If that happened, would we know what it should look like? Good question. A better question might be, would we know an intelligent exoplanet if we saw one? To get a little dystopian, what if there are no intelligent exoplanets? There are those who believe that the process of achieving the technology to leave a planet will also destroy it, most likely before any more than a few escape. Frank predicts that only other life forms we can expect to encounter are those who, does, who survive by achieving planetary intelligence. If they did that, why would they want to leave? Would their planet let them? 
So that's just a little, that was interesting, man. Yeah, look. There's a lot of questions there. I, I know. You, what have you got? That's a very, very um, climate change biased. Um, I got halfway because I, there, man, I skimmed. I skimmed at dot pointing right. Yeah. The other night, and I didn't pick up the climate change because I didn't read it's it. Putting a lot of emphasis on humans' impact. Yeah. On the planet, mm-hmm. and look, fact of the matter is. There was a large period of time when the planet didn't have life on it. That's true. Um, there's been a large period, large period, period of time when it supported like nearly a monoculture. Yeah. Uh, in terms of very few species mm-hmm. um, on the Earth, um, and it's drawing a long bow. Yes. To look at it from, look at it from an obvious humans are parasite perspective yes sort of thing and it's putting a lot of words in the earth's mouth yes um look i don't think the earth would give a fuck if we're here or not like <laughs> it's still gonna be there in whatever sh- way shape or form it exists yeah. and it's done it once it'll do it again that's right like whether we even if we were to extinct the planet mm. something will fucking Something will survive. That's exactly and the and next the next life form. Continue. Yeah, the next life and form. Like will to say yeah. to say that the Earth developed systems to support life, mm. or did life adapt to needing the systems that were already put in place? I would say life which adapted. came first. I would say chicken life or the adapted. egg. You know. So look, yeah, I I smelt the bias from a fucking mile away. <laughs> And it uh, <laughs> it stinks. Yeah, it was a climate. I didn't realize how climate change nah, it was. Look, no, nah, look, hey, we 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 read the we read the article. We fucking have an opinion. That's right. You know, look, I do think, but the the so back away from the climate change stuff. Yeah, the basic idea is is the planet intelligence fascinating? Well, that's right. The mycelium, you know what I mean? The, the mushrooms, man. The tree roots, and it was sort of what we were saying before about. Um, Collective consciousness. Yes. Um, what I, I, I your would, question is: What is consciousness? Which is the eternal question. That's the hard oh, question. We still don't know what consciousness. Hundred percent. That's right. Yeah. Um, but you know, with with all these minds mm. um, creating a vibration and humming and putting out energy. Yes. In the biosphere. Yes. I have no doubt that there's there is some field of energy. If we had the correct technology that you could that you could observe, so, yeah, absolutely, yeah, from all of the all of the minds thinking all the time, mm. from the the cockroaches to the the mycelium mm. to the plants to you know all of everything, yeah, everything just creating well, here's an interesting energy from being thing. alive. So there was some kookaburras in the yard today, three mm-hmm. or four of them, mm-hmm. and. Kath said she heard this dunk against the window. Yep. And it was this young kookaburra had flew into the window. And there's three other kookaburras sitting in the tree pissing themselves laughing. Hmm. Yep. So what is consciousness? Because those birds for sure said, yeah, man, you can fly through the window. Go for it, dude. <laughs> we want to see you try. And then psh, dunk. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah, that yeah, for yeah. sure. A conversation took place up in the tree. Yeah. Yeah, for sure, man, you can go. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. Yeah. I dare you. Yeah. Just jump down there. 
go down, you grab the thing off the bench. Yeah. You can right. see it. It's yeah. there. Go yeah. and grab it. Yeah. And they're like, remember the first time you hit a window? Fuck. <laughs> that sucked. Yeah. This cunt won't do it again. That's right. <laughs> so it's interesting, man, because you're questioning what is consciousness, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because that was active animal conscious. Is the plant conscious? I think it's a fascinating idea, man. I Yeah. The climate change stuff. And I don't want to get into climate change, not because we've got a better thing to talk about. Because your article completely switching tack. So now, while you while you swap over here, mm. run me down because you got the names there. Who who are the people that uh, put us onto this one? So this is an old. Well, you brought this up. You've brought this up a couple of times over the years. Talking yes, about but aliens. I've always been dusty on on uh, facts yes but it's the uh australian ufo sighting at the school yeah and this one's quite detailed this that article. i brought up so this is a very detailed article that's what grabbed us so yeah, we thought yeah. it was time to uh share something that we'd shared before but share like the information we'd yeah, yeah. like a detailed account yes about it so yeah. then we can all just like not put it to bed so to say but we'll all be on the same page yeah exactly what happened yeah yeah so it was Jock, John, Tony, Shane, and Ben. Good on you, boys. Fellow coders, thank you very much. Thank you, legends. Awesome, right? Thank you very much for the engagement, and uh, thank you very much for your support. And just, yeah, so who's different out of there? Spencer, Riccio had the baby, and uh, Shane and Spencer. That's it. So thanks, boys. Well, uh, dial me up. Oh, here we go. I'm interested, man, because I, I, again, scanned this but didn't read everything. Okay. Uh, so where is are that we? it? That's it. All right. So this is from oh February fifteenth, twenty twenty two. Twenty two. Um, and who's the lovely? Where do we get this one from? Alienstar.net. Alienstar.net. Yeah. Lovely. Thank you, Alienstar.net. All right. Let's kick on in. Hundreds of students and teachers. Witness strange UFO above school in Australia. Australia saw its greatest collective UFO sighting in history in 1966. Over 300 kids, teachers and others observed as a silver disc-shaped object sailed above the school, stopped behind it, then lifted up and flew, flew away for more than 20 minutes. Witnesses to the event had no explanation what they witnessed 50 years later. I didn't realise there was a crop circle. Uh, so there. there's a the West Hall High School UFO on April 6, 1966, and there's a photo of a crop circle there. Yeah. Class of pupils and a teacher from West Hall High School, now West Hall Secondary College, had just concluded an outdoor physical education lesson on April 6, 1966 at 11 a.m. in Clayton South, a Melbourne, a Melbourne? A, a Melbourne, Victoria. Yeah, Melbourne, Victoria. Wow, no An one, Australian suburbs. See, they don't no know one how to proofread their stuff no, no, anymore. No. In Clayton South, Melbourne, Victoria, which is an Australian suburb, which is a suburb yeah. in Australia, but whatever. Come on, guys. Let's proofread our stuff. It's not like sending a text. Yeah. Okay. It was a beautiful fall day. Fall. Bright and breezy. A student observed a UFO in the sky as the students moved toward the building. It was grey and saucer shaped with a purple tinge, it resembled a school bus in size. Andrew Greenwood, a science instructor, apparently noticed the item at the same moment. It was roughly 400 yards away, disc-shaped, and had no discernible markings, he said. 
moving in a southeasterly direction, the object hovered above a pair of power lines and passed the southwest corner of the school's property. Then it sank below a grove of pine trees and vanished into a clearing known as the Grange. More kids stepped outdoors to observe the UFO as word of it spread. The item resurfaced in front of the school a few minutes after going into the clearing, where it stayed visible for around 20 minutes. Around 200 children, instructors, teachers, stood outside watching, (laughs) watching the craft at this time. Soon after, more members of the public joined the gathering bringing the total number of witnesses to almost 350. The way it's worded is odd. Hmm. It's interesting. It is. But, hey, we're not here to pick it to pick the grammar to pieces. No, that's right. We're here for the for the info. You should get that pink rug too, mate. No. That's a sexy pink rug, man. <laughs> Click on that for a moment. No. According to witnesses on the scene, the item was silently lingering in the sky when an airplane came and began circling it. Four other planes arrived shortly after and encircled the target. Each plane took turns approaching the object with caution. The thing would dart away as they got closer. The chase had been going on for over half an hour when the object suddenly ascended and flew northwest. It vanished in a matter of seconds, according to witnesses. Yeah, just messing around with the old fighter jets from the 60s. We, we probably had F4s, maybe. At that 66 stage. would be, yeah, we'd have, we'd have uh, Sabres, F86 Sabres. F86 the, Sabres with like the, a MiG-17 yeah, yeah, style, yeah, with like single open tank. Nose. Yes, yeah. open nose, yeah. Yeah, either Sabres or, yeah, the start of F4s. Yeah. Yep. Students dashed to the fence near the clearing when the item vanished where the object had disappeared from view. They noticed a definite circular depression of swirling discoloured grass in the clearing military men arrive on site at about 3 p.m. So that's a... That's a modern photo. That's I was going to say that, like, because the grass looked quite yeah. long and thick like a paddock it was an, sort yeah, of thing. Not, that's obviously a modern photo. All right, scroll down. Military officials and emergency services arrived at the school hours after the sighting, but before school let out during the day, they interrogated the children and teachers in an attempt to make sense of what they had witnessed. UFO investigators begin a formal inquiry on April 8th, 1966. Began? Mm, began the, a formal began, inquiry? Began, yes. The Victorian Flying Saucer Research Society visited the school on April 8th and chatted with the children. In the area behind the school, investigators discovered a ground mark. The ground mark was described as a huge spherical piece of yellow flattened grass with a swirly design. According to reports, the depression's borders were discolored and clearly defined. Phenomena Research Australia comes on April the 9th, 1966 to investigate PRA. We may, may need to do some uh, yeah, investigation about uh, it. Uh, yeah, is there a Phenomena Research Australia now or we need to... Figure that one out anyway. Well, That's interesting. Yeah. Brian Boyle was dispatched by the Phenomena Research Australia group three days later to investigate. He was joined by four army investigators. Boyle conducted many days of interviews with witnesses and collected soil samples from the ground mark. The soil sample, on the other hand, was misplaced before it could be examined. Of course it was. Additional soil samples were not possible to get days Why? after the incident. Because what? 
the farmer who owned the land allegedly set fire to the ground mark area. Look, I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt that though, because we were we were quite a um, Christian country, yeah, back in the sixties. So I could, you know, burn the demons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) I have exercised the demons. I don't like it. I'm going to set fire to it. Yeah, fuck it. (laughs) It won't. Pretty much, you burn something that don't exist anymore. That's right. All right. The sighting is reported in the Dandenong Journal on April fourteenth, nineteen sixty-six. Give me that. Give me that headline. Flying saucer mystery. School silent. What was it? School silence, interesting, right? So, so what happened is the military turned up in interview and said, "Hey, you you can't say anything about this. Shut your mouth. Yeah, can't say anything about this because that's our despite the magnitude of the tragedy. That's that's our um that's our tech. Yeah, we can't let out. Despite the magnitude of the tragedy, it took more than a week for full stories to surface in local media. The Dandenong Journal." was the first to report on the occurrence. The article was featured on the front page of the newspaper. The following night, local television station Nine News broadcasted a full investigation report regarding the incident. The broadcast's archive footage has now been lost. Of course it has. Wow. It's always the story. Give me some more. Keep going. Keep going. The occurrence was once again published on published on the main page of the local newspaper on April 21, 1966. Officials presented an explanation this time, one that sounded strangely sim- similar to one given a decade earlier for a sighting at Roswell, New Mexico. A weather balloon was reported to be the item. Five planes spotted following the UFO, on the other hand, remained a mystery. There were no planes in the vicinity and no local pilots reported taking part in the chase. <laughs> Who were the five pilots? That's, there you go. Mm. That's the, What's the question? headline at that time. The Westall sighting is investigated by Dr. James E. McDonald. Dr. James E. McDonald, an American physicist, became involved in the research and compiled an interesting collection of interview tapes and witness notes. Andrew Greenwood, a science teacher, was interviewed by him. A frightened youngster raced into Greenwood's classroom and informed him there was a flying saucer outside, and it was the first time he heard about the UFO. He assumed the youngster had gone insane or something, (laughs) so he didn't pay attention. But when the child maintained that this object was in the sky, he went out to investigate. When he stepped outside, he spotted a gathering of students staring towards the northeast corner of the school grounds. As he got closer, he claimed he saw a UFO hovering near the power line. It was characterized by Mr. Greenwood as a circular silver object the size of a vehicle with a metal rod pointing out in the air. Funny that. Mm. We used to have antenna. Mm. They don't seem to have antenna anymore. No. Yeah, they did used to have antennas, yeah. Greenwood so also... Like airplanes used to have antennas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then they got faster, so they antenna, you couldn't have an antenna whipping well, around. they've got them, but they're in the yeah, plane now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're integrated in. Mm. Yeah, whereas they used to have like a radio antenna hanging out the roof of your car mm. on that old spring bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, with a coat hanger in the shape yeah, of right. 
bent into this shape of Australia. Greenwood also recalled witnessing the five jets. There you go. That's mm. the first time they called them jets, so they jets. would be sabres. Yeah. Pursue the UFO. According to McDonald, he described it as the most incredible flying he had ever seen. Mm. And there we go again. What happened to the five pilots? Oh, I can sort can of can you want to try and read that. I, I can try. I can read if you it's, want. Yeah, yeah sure. Got, let's go. You go. Uh, members You're going to struggle on the next page. Yeah, so. I'm going to. Let's have a look. Members of the society have cooperated in the investigations and are now studying much of the information obtained, although the interviews have helped to confirm the sighting of an unidentified object and to gain corroborative descriptions of it. There are still many unanswered questions. Apart from the obvious puzzle uh, of the origin of the unidentified object, the greatest mystery remaining is that of five aircraft which were sighted flying around it. There is no doubt that the object was circled by light aircraft. But all small the, aircraft. Small aircraft. Sabres were pretty... They're pretty small. Yeah. Uh, but all attempts to asset, obtain details of aircraft in the area or to trace the pilots have failed. The questions that need answers are, where did the aircraft take off and land? Why, if they were obviously chasing a strange object in the sky, the pilots didn't make an official report? Why, following publicity over the incident, hasn't any of the pilots come to light with information? These are questions that may never be answered. So that's from 1966, man. Or some within a year. Mm. Mm. That be interesting to know if there's ever, you know, any pilots come forward. How mm. you know. The planes were trying all they could to reach the object, he added. He added, adding that he'll never know how they all avoided colliding. When they approached too close to the thing, it would speed slowly, then quickly, then move away from them and halt. They'd then chase it down again, and the same thing would happen. Greenwood verified that the school's headmaster, Frank Samblebe, Blebe? Stepped Stepped out after around 30 minutes and wanted everyone back into class. After that, the headmaster held a meeting, told everyone to stop talking about the encounter. Greenwood had a clear memory of the headmaster's requests. He gave the students a lecture and warned them that if they talked about it, they would be severely penalised. And he warned the staff that if they discussed it at all, they would lose their jobs. Isn't that, you hear that every time, man. Mm. Every time. Sounds like I Sam Bleebeer might have been, had a phone call. Yeah. General knocked on his door first. But McDonald claims that sharply dressed individuals oh. wearing black suits. Of course they did. Arrived at the school shortly after the sighting. According to many witnesses, the guys were reportedly telling instructors and children at the school to keep their tongues quiet about keep the incident. Quiet. The guys in black, the guys in black, according to McDonald, intimidated witnesses. One kid gave him a comprehensive account of the sighting, but then refused to speak to him after it half an hour later. He didn't blame the student's unwillingness to speak with him on the headmaster's orders. He was confident the youngster had skipped the school assembly where the principal had instructed students not to discuss the incident. He received the impression that the pupil had been threatened. 
Threats to academics and students also influenced media coverage. In a nutshell, it halted all coverage of the story. Because the media kept running against an official wall of silence, it ceased to be a story <laughs> and became merely a memory for those concerned. Of course it did. Witnesses came forward years after the incident. Witnesses began to tell about what they had seen decades after the occurrence. Clark Joy. When the UFO circled Westall High School, Joy Clark was just 12 years old. She vividly recalls the events of the day. I was in class when the tale was relayed to us by classmates. I noticed the flying saucers as we hurried down to the Oval. They weren't of this planet, in my opinion. They had to be from another country, since I'd never seen anything like it. Military officers and guys in black appeared, according to Joy, and commanded that the students be silent. The soldiers had come and the cops had arrived as well. While guys in black interrogated some of the other youngsters, hmm. we were informed we were emotional and it didn't happen. Yeah, it just didn't happen. You're seeing things. Of course. Hmm. And then Stephen Cairns came along. The UAP was also oh, seen by... It's modern, modern article. It's not a UFO. Yeah. was also seen by Stephen Cairns and his mother. And like the other students, Cairns was able to observe the event from a distinct perspective. After a dental vi visit, Stephen was heading back to school when he saw something peculiar in the sky. I noticed a silvery disc-like object in the distance. However, it was so far away at first that I had no idea what it was. The silvery disc-like object accelerated to the point where it was exactly over us. It lingered for a few seconds before flying away as fast as it had arrived. Terry Peck is a writer. Terry Peck was out playing cricket when she noticed a flying saucer in the sky. I was only around seven yards away from it, says the narrator. Seven yards. Seven yards. So seven metres away. Yeah. Says the narrator. It was around and it was round and larger than a vehicle underneath it. I believe I saw some lights. Two other females had arrived before me. They were pale. Extremely white, ghostly white, and one was terribly disturbed. They just stated that they had passed out or fainted. An ambulance was used to transport one of the victims to the hospital. Terry also believes the situation was obfuscated. Obfuscated. There's word of the day. It's a mouthful. Mm. We were all summoned to an assembly. They also urged us Urgent. Far out. This is it's hard enough as it is. I know. They also urge everyone <laughs> to be quiet. <laughs> I'd love for someone for the military to come and say, "Yes, it happened. It landed, and there was a cover-up." Jacqueline Argent is a model and actress. Mm -mm, Jacqueline, one of the first pupils to observe the landing site was Jacqueline Argent. She pe she peered over a fence after the saucer-shaped object flew away and noticed the depressed circle marks in the grass. At first, I assumed it was an experimental aircraft, but nothing like it has surfaced in all these years. Jacqueline confirms that she was never interviewed after the incident and claims... She was interviewed after the incident. Sorry, <laughs> that she was interviewed after the incident and claims that the individuals who interrogated her to make her look bad because of her testimony. 
They wore high-quality clothes and spoke clearly. I guess you saw small green guys, they added. Was the item nothing more than a balloon? In 2014, researcher Keith Basterfield claimed to have discovered information in the National Archives indicating the item was simply a balloon, a top-secret balloon that was doing radiation testing, to be precise. During the 1960s, he claimed similar balloons were flown in the region. (gasps) He concedes, though, that he cannot be positive. (laughs) What's notable at the absence of a document detailing the four the four April 1966 launches, one of which was slated for April 5th, 1966, the day before Westall. Witnesses now refute Basterfield's hypothesis, pointing out that the object they saw was close enough to them to view it clearly as a solid disc. They further report that it raced away at a frighteningly fast velocity. In Melbourne, there was a momentous occurrence. The sighting at Westall High School is still fresh in people's minds today. The children who are in their late 50s at the, at the time of writing are still hoping for an answer. Meanwhile, the landing site has been transformed into a memorial park to commemorate the impact of Australia's greatest mass UFO sightings on locals. And that's it. There you go. Now, well, that was, that was a good article. Grammar aside. Yeah, grammar sort of aside, the that, detail was pretty good. Gave us some good details. Yeah. And look, I do remember them being um, quite close to it. Mm. So that's, you know, this, the, whole, the whole seven yards thing mm. makes sense. Mm. Well, yeah, mate. Uh, look, if we could go there. Well, I don't know. Can we go there? Possibly. Well, possibly. Uh, however, yeah, we could actually go to the park and see where it is. They were interesting articles, man. Very oh. interesting articles. And we thank again our listeners for their engagement mm. that, to bring us those, mm. those uh, articles. So, But now we have the most important, the piece de resistance. Yes. <sighs> the forbidden secrets of the earth. And last time we finished up before a fossilized human shoe print. Yeah, no, we, we finished up with ancient x-ray machine. Uh, oh, we finished up before. I said. Yeah, before. So yeah. Um. Anyway, continue. Yes. Yeah, so we finished on the X-ray. We're going to be moving on to the fossilized human human shoe print. Take mm. it away, El Maestro. Right. Oh, let's have a look at this. A fossilized human shoe print. A most amazing artifact was discovered in Antelope Spring. Uh, Good start. Off to a flyer. Antelope Springs, Utah, by William J. Meister in June of '68. Meister split open a two-inch thick slab, two-inch thick slab of rock with his hammer, and the rock fell open like a book, revealing a shoe print of a human on one side, with trilobites right in the print itself. This artifact is extremely significant because this is not a footprint. No, no, no. It's a shoe print. The other half of the rock slab, in turn, shows almost perfect mould of the print and the fossils. The shoe print is ten and a quarter inches long and three and a half inches wide. The heel is indented slightly like the sole of a modern shoe and seems to have crushed a living trilobite. The obvious problem is the artifacts creates is that trilobites lived between 300 and 600 million years ago. There's that 300 again. 300 again. Yet here, yet here is evidence that a person wearing a shoe crushed one beneath his heel. 
The heel of the fossil print even displays fine stitching symbols that found on a modern leather shoe. Go figure. Yeah, wow. That is um, interesting. That's cool. I wonder if there's a high-resolution photos of that. You keep going, brother. The Droper Stones. There are, oh, before we move on to the Droper Stones, mm. the Eka Stones. Ah, yes. So I had a bit of a chat to Bob, who's over in Peru. Yep, yep, yep. I was talking to him about a few other bits and pieces the other night, and yeah. he basically corroborated what Max said. Is that yes? Some of them were have, have been fakes. Obviously, someone started making money, so there were some fakes made, which is some fair enough. People want to make some money. Yeah, but yeah. there's some weird shit about those stones, right? And you know, this 300 million, 600 million, like the timeline blowing out. Mm. Bob doesn't exactly disagree with. Okay, and he's going to share some more about that in the near future on the show. He's going to come back on, and that's interesting. We're going to talk megaliths. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you, Bob. Yeah. So yeah, basically. The the amnesia theory just gets more and more iterations yeah. back further yeah. of possible future past generations. That's right. Sort of thing. That's right. So it's yeah. weird. It's weird yeah. because you know, we do have that there are some of those artifacts that sort of show like a crossover between mm. sort of dinosaurs and humans. Mm-hmm. And yeah, either either some survived that aren't never got into the fossil record and we lived back further than we did or we just lived way back who knows man it's it's a crazy crazy thought well, to, i to still down, think but... and i and i actually floated this by bob and he, he found it interesting yeah is that the does a cataclysm accelerate the carbon timeline or decelerate you know what i mean like mm. you know i said that so it's like it's all based on carbon that they're doing this dating or what they believe to understand it right mm. what if cataclysms you know a big fucking rock from the sky or yeah. a super volcano yeah. or would it pick take your pick right yep what if that because i mean you're measuring the spaces between the carbon and all that sort of stuff to get your timeline well and, and, the, and the amount of isotopes left yeah, sort of right. thing because so it's like half-life. but does cataclysm yeah accelerate or decelerate that progress very very possible let's not let's also not forget the fact that the further back timelines go you start to then take uh crustal displacement into it that's right. And you've got these massive subduction zones. Mm-hmm. So anything that was at those rift areas mm-hmm. is either covered in, in lava mm-hmm. or it's been melted back into the into the mantle underneath the crust. And you take in the basketball theory or, you know, whatever, whichever way you want to go. Yeah. With, you know what I mean? But like if you're going back 300 million years, you can take all that crust movement into into, into effect, account. Yeah. Well, I mean, isn't it that wasn't the, the Eka stones, it was like 13 million years ago? Yes. They estimated with the, some of the maps that were on those stones? Yes, with some of the drawings and stuff that was there, they estimated them to be at 13 million years. Yeah, right. Fascinating stuff. Let's find about Droper Stones, mate. Let's do it. There are very few artifacts more mystifying than the Droper Stones. The tale of the stones is quite an amazing story and sometimes should be given for a reasonable account. I just love this story. And the difference between, if you just got to say, because we just mentioned the grammar again. So we've yeah. read what? four articles now mm-hmm. it's not been good in any of them really the no. scientific one's better but then they they waffle you know what i mean yeah yeah max knows how to write a story <laughs> this was this was written when uh proofreading was done that's right yeah yeah 
Our tale begins in 1938, high in the Bayankara Ula Mountains on the border between China and Tibet. A group of archaeologists led by a professor, Chi Pu Tei, were exploring a series of interlinked caves. No surprise there. When much to their surprise, they came upon a collection of neatly arranged graves. <clears throat> Excuse me within the cave system. The graves contained within them a number of somewhat unusual skeletal remains and the scientists at first surmised that they had discovered a new species of ape. However, since it is unreasonable to conclude that apes buried each other, it was deduced that they that their skeletons could only be of an unusual and possibly hitherto unknown race of beings. The remains were quite unique in that they were around only five foot in height, had unnaturally spindly bodies and quite large overdeveloped heads. Picture they were elongated. Can't, well, I haven't, can't see the picture yet. Uh, while the archaeological team was studying the skeletons, one of the men also accidentally stumbled across a large round stone disc that lay half buried in the dust on the floor of the cave. The disc had a hole in the centre and a fine spiral groove radiated to the rim and looked ridiculously like a kind of Stone Age gramophone record. I think I've seen this. Closer inspection, however, showed that the spiralling groove was in fact a continuous line of tiny, tiny and very closely written characters that had been somehow meticulously inscribed on the surface of the disc. The object appeared, it appeared, was indeed a record of sorts, though not of the gramophone variety. On the walls of the caves themselves, the archaeologists also discovered crude pictures of the rising sun, the moon, the earth, and some identifiable, unidentifiable stars, all joined together by lines of pea-sized dots. The discs and the cave drawings have both been dated to around 12,000 years old. That's an interesting number considering what's happened since then. It's quite an interesting number, isn't it? Elongated skulls. The disc is fascinating. I think, you know, we're, we're looking at... Um, we're so, so, so used to cleaner pictures now. Mm-hmm. Some of these pictures. We've got to look some of this stuff up. In all, 716 such discs were eventually found and retrieved from within the cave system. All have been dated as being between 10,000 and 12,000 years old. That is an interesting time frame. Mm. Each stone disc is precisely 9 inches, 22.7. How did they date them, though? They would have dated them off the, the dirt stuff the that was on them. Yeah, the dirt in the so cave. So the dirt in the cave was that old. Yeah. The discs came from before the cataclysm. That's right. That's right. So that this is obviously the records of something, you know what Could I mean? Be. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. The CDs, man. Yeah, you know what I mean. So yeah, uh, nine inches thick, twenty-two point seven centimeters in diameter, and three-quarter inch, two centimeters thick. Each disc has a perfectly circular two-centimeter hole in the exact center, and each bears an inscription in the form of strange carved hieroglyphs. For twenty years after their discovery, all attempts to translate them having failed. The disc sat in the Peking Peking. Peking, Peking Museum, mostly forgotten. Finally, in 1963, another Chinese professor, Dr. Sum Um Noi, was finally able to break the code and set about deciphering the discs. And it's here the story becomes even more intriguing. Initially, the professor's conclusions on the meaning of the discs was considered so shattering that his transcriptions were suppressed and he was forbidden to publish his findings by the Peking Academy of Prehistory. We just keep hearing that over and over and over again. Eh? It didn't fit the paradigm. It didn't fit the paradigm. However, two years later in 1965, Dr. Nui and four of his colleagues at last received permission to release the transcription. The story it told was astounding to say the least. 
for the discs told the tale of a spaceship, perhaps more like a probe or a scout ship from a distant planet that crash-landed in the Himalayan mountains region thousands of years ago. They tell how the surviving occupants of the spacecraft, the Dropa, had taken refuge in the caves of the mountains, but despite their peaceful intentions, they had been misunderstood by the members of a local ham tribe who were occupying the neighbouring caves. The Ham tribe distrusted them and hunted down the survivors and killed some of them. According to Dr. Sum Um Nui, one of the first lines of the hieroglyphs reads, the dropers came down from the clouds in their aircraft. Our men, women and children hid in caves 10 times before sunrise. When at last they understood the sign language of the dropers, they realised that the newcomers had peaceful intentions. Another section mentions that the Ham tribe eventually became the friends of the Droper and even expressed regret that their spaceship had crash-landed in such remote and inaccessible mountains and that there had been no way of building a new one to enable the Droper to return to their own planet. However, in those 27 years since the discovery of the first disc, archaeologists and anthropologists have also learned a good deal more about the isolated Bayankaraula region and much of the information seemed to corroborate the bizarre story recorded on the discs. Local legends still surviving the area also speak of small, gaunt, yellow-faced men who came from the clouds long, long ago. These legends tell of men who had huge, bulging heads and puny bodies and were considered to be so ugly and repellent that they were hunted down by local tribesmen on horseback and many were killed. The description of the invaders is also remarkably close to the skeletons originally discovered in the caves in 1938 by Professor Chi Pu Tay. Most interestingly, the cave systems of Bayankaraula Mountains area are still, in, are still inhabited today by two semi-troglodyte tribes known as the Hams and the Dropers. Look at that. <laughs> the Droper tribesmen are themselves extremely odd in appearance, being somewhat frail and stunted by averaging only about five feet in height. They're neither typically Chinese or, nor Tibetan, and anthropologists readily admit their racial background really is a mystery. Are the Droper the descendants of the people mentioned in the discs? Do these strange discs actually record a disastrous space mission by alien astronauts 12,000 years ago? Nearly all the leading theorists believe so. We may never know for sure, but the message contained in the discs is extremely fascinating nonetheless. I, that is, that's new to me. We need a, dude, we need a full like a we need a full investigation like a, into the drope discs um, sitchin-esque tablet sumerian tablets sort of style like thing man like oh funny thing is they don't mention in this article but um this chapter no no but this oh, oh sorry this yes yes it is this title hmm. this section they don't mention that they mention any cataclysms though no so this could have like we said before this could have possibly happened pre-cataclysm yeah if a cataclysm happened at all we've got to leave that that could yeah, be a possibility yeah, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. um yeah it, it could have quite possibly happened pre that and then but i mean if you've got skeletons now you can date skeletons yeah it's true. like you can't date discs but see, all Stone these skeletons discs, go missing like skeleton. everything else does, man. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. All the giant skeletons go missing, all the paracas. So let's, you know, like let's all not, that stuff. well, the thing is, right, let's not worry about the, um, uh, sorry, 
I just blanked for a second. The DNA of the modern day dropers. Yeah. What, is, what does that It'll be, be quite easy to test the DNA of them versus the DNA of these these other skeletons That's that true. we are in yeah, possession yeah, of. It so it's be. like there's some there's some gaps there that are very easy to fill. Very easy to fill. If, if as long as the skeletons haven't gone missing. Well, which they probably have. They they probably have. Yeah. And you've got to remember this is 20 years ago. So DNA hundred percent technology and all the, the ability to do that is accelerated a lot. That's right. We could years. definitely quite easily do things this day and age mm. that we couldn't back then. Would you like me to take it from here, my friend? Do you want to? Oh, yeah. I think this is up your alley, mate. Oh, yeah, I've yeah. had a few fingers up my alley. <laughs> a fossilized human finger. Another similar artifact that simply just should not exist is this fossilized human finger. The fossil known simply as DM93-083, dates from the Cretaceous period or about 100 to 110 million years ago. X-rays of the specimen have also shown some less dense areas within the finger, revealing the presence of marrow within the bone, shown in the slide by the darker areas. Ah, yes. Figure 41. That's it. That's it. Oh, that was a nice quick one. Short one. Just a fossilized human finger, 100 million years old. Well, you know, a fossilized finger. Yeah, exactly. How do they know it's human? Uh, finger? Look, it and looks a lot like a human finger. But, but here's but... another thing too. Nowadays, you could you could drill a tiny hole into there and extract the bone marrow and do a testing on it. No, oh, but not if it's been fully fossilized. If yeah, it's been fossilized, true. all all the uh, material has been replaced with minerals. And I suppose they're just measuring the different densities. It's of just the minerals a density, the exactly. Yeah. That's right. Brass Bell and Coal, in a discovery in 1944 that by now is almost becoming commonplace, a man called Newton Anderson found this quaint brass bell inside a lump of coal that was mined near his house in West Virginia. Newton dropped the lump and it broke, revealing the bell encased inside. The bell underwent rigorous testing and was extensively analysed at the University of Oklahoma and found to, found to contain known metals but mixed together in an unusual blend and quite different from any modern alloys. Numerous other such discoveries in coal have been ha, have ever been recorded, including the delicate gold chain mentioned previously and a cast iron pot that was also found inside a coal seam. Mm. Interesting. What's that skull? What are the skull's doing there? I don't know. Maybe it's in the next bit. The, maybe oh, the it's the Rhodesian man. In 1921, a Neanderthal skull was discovered 60 feet below ground in Rhodesia that produced a strange mystery. Upon examination, it appeared that the skull had been pierced by high-velocity projectiles similar to a bullet in the left temple. Tests have shown... Oh, yes, there. Yeah, there's a bullet hole there. It's a, like a 22 caliber bullet. Hmm... Mm. Tests have shown that the injury must have indeed occurred at the moment of death and not from a stray bullet years afterwards. This means that whoever fired the fatal bullet must have done it thousands of years ago. According to author Reen Norbergen, a German forensic authority from Berlin has positively stated that the cranial damage to Rhodesian man's skull could not have been caused by anything but a bullet. The rounded entry point of the wound also testifies to the great speed which the projectile would have had would have had to have been traveling. 
Mm. Yes, it is a very nice, clean. It's a clean hole. Clean hole. Mm. <laughs> That's a clean hole. Oh, my goodness. I'll take over if you want. Yeah, yeah. go for it, man. Oh. So I wanted to do this because I, I purposely haven't read this one. I, I wanted to read this one. A pillar of too much pure iron. Much too pure iron. Much too pure iron. Yeah, if you're going to read it, read it correctly. Uh, in Delhi, India. India is such a mystery, man. Just oh, dude, unbelievable, right? Yeah. There is an iron pillar that has been completely defi- that has completely defied metallurgists by remaining absolutely rust-free for the last sixteen hundred years, ever since its discovery by the West. It's unclear of how long the pillar has actually been standing for. In fact, there is more than one of these in India. The problem lies in the fact that such rust-free iron of the type that is found in these pillars is unheard of in our modern technology. These iron pillars are in fact a metallurgist nightmare or dream, depending on your mindset. One truly interesting thing is the fact that the only other place completely rust-free iron has been located in rock samples that were brought back from the moon during the Apollo missions. So we're like on, they would be rust free because they're not subjected to the no oxygen yeah, or exactly. yeah, well, very low oxygen, yeah, different yeah. atmosphere, no water, you know, I mean, all that sort of stuff, exactly. Uh, so, no where, yeah, so where on earth did the iron used to make these pillars in India come from in ancient times? Well, they, they made it with copper chisels, man, <laughs> of course. Some people have theories on where such pillars are from, save that thought. They're interesting, aren't they? Mm. Just random metal pillars. Oh, he's just teased us with that. I thought he was going to go deep, save that thought. He's just teased us. Max, mate, that's not very nice. I wanted more on that. <laughs> Blue balls on that. Yeah. <laughs> I want to finish. Uh, 2.8 billion year old metal spheres. Oh, yeah. In the most bizarre series of finds that are still ongoing for the past 60 years or so, Miners in Africa have been finding literally hundreds of metal spheres, some from quite deep underground, and at least one of them, possibly more, has three parallel grooves running around its circumference. The spheres seem to come in two types. One is of a solid bluish metal and has white flecks in it, and the others are hollow with a kind of spongy centre. The curator of the Museum of Klerksdorp in South Africa, where many of the spears are housed, were little there, that clerk's drop, dorp. It's through you, didn't it? Me, man. Where many of the spheres are housed, and Mr. Rolf Marx describes them this way. The spheres are a complete mystery. They look man-made, yet at the time in Earth's history, when they came to rest in this rock, no intelligent life existed. They're nothing like I've ever seen before. Rolf Marx also wrote a further later letter dated September 12, 1984, that contains more information on the spheres. In it, he wrote... There is nothing scientifically published about the globes, but the facts are they are found in pyrophyllite, which is mined near the little town of Ottostal in the western Transvaal. The South African Dutch stuff is a bit much, isn't it? Mm. This pyrophyllite, I'm not going to read that, is quite a soft secondary mineral with a count of only three on the Mohs scale and was formed by sedimentation about 2.8 billion years ago. On the other hand, the globes, which have a fibrous structure on the inside with a shell around it, are very hard and cannot be scratched even by steel. The Mohs scale of hardness was devised and is named after Frederick Mohs, who, cho- who chose 10 minerals as reference points for comparative hardness 
with talc being the softest and diamond the hardest. However, if the mere existence of these metal spheres is not enough, there is still another amazing property of the artifacts that captured the attention of Mr. John Hund of Petersburg about 15 years ago. While playing with one of the objects on the flat surface of a table one day, Hund apparently noticed that the spheres seemed to be particularly well balanced, so he decided to take it to the California Space Institute at the University of California for testing to determine just exactly how well balanced it actually was. What the results of the test surprisingly showed is that the sphere was in fact balanced perfectly and exactly. The balance of the sphere was in fact so exact that it exceeded the limits of any of the Space Institute's current measuring technology. And these are the people who make gyro compasses for NASA. Not too badly balanced at all, really. So I wonder which one was it, the one with the three stripes that he took? Like which one, which one like did he a, take? Looks like a kookaburra, mate. Looks like a fucking red king. Yeah, it does, doesn't the it? Three, yeah. <laughs> someone's bowling seamers 280 billion years ago. That's right. But um, look, they don't look very well balanced either. No. Like I'm looking at from those pictures. Mm. I don't know which one they fucking measured. The sedimentary rock in which most of these spheres were found is located well below the surface in deep underground mines. Estimates are 2.8 billion years old. So, I mean, you know, and is it, is it just our research brain? Just like, well, where's the photo of the one that he took to the mm-hmm. Space Institute? Yeah. Because even that one on the left, which looks better than the ones on the right, still, still got lumps in it by yeah. the looks of it. How mm. can that be balanced? The crystal skulls. Do you I'll want take to, it from yeah. here. My <laughs> crystal skulls are mine. <laughs> Perhaps it's because they are fashioned in the shape of human skulls, or maybe it's due to the hint of some dark and mysterious curse. Whatever the reason may be, there are a few artifacts that have generated more interest than the crystal skulls. Even Indiana went after them. That's right. And you know it's got to be deep if Indiana's after them. Mm. There have actually been several crystal skulls of quite incredible workmanship found in various places around the world through perhaps, though perhaps, the most widely celebrated and also the most mysterious of these Mm. is the Mitchell Hedges skull, which has also been known as the skull of doom. The skull of doom. There are at least three very good reasons for this. Firstly, the skull is very similar in form and size to an actual human skull, even featuring a fitted and removable jawbone, while most other known crystal skulls are of a more stylized or avant-garde appearance, quite often with unrealistic features and teeth that are simply etched onto the surface of the crystal. Secondly, it is as yet unknown how the Mitchell Hedges skull was constructed. From a scientific and technical perspective, it appears to be an utterly impossible object that has been made to a ridiculous degree of perfection by an unknown technique, which today's most talented sculptors and engineers are still unable to duplicate. Even by modern methods, and quite simply, even by modern methods and quite simply should not exist. Mm. Thirdly, it is a complete mystery as to where the skull actually comes from. The discovery of the skull is still a controversial matter and one that has been brought into question many times. The story goes like this. A British explorer by the name of F.A. Michael Mitchell Hedges embarked on several expeditions in the aim of searching for evidence the lost civilization of Atlantis. He claims that his stepdaughter, Anna, unearthed a skull in 1927, 
during such an expedition that he had led into the ancient Mayan ruins of Lubantun in Belize, then called British Honduras. According to Mitchell Hedges, Enna, then 17 years old, was searching inside a structure that was believed to have once been a temple when she found the discovery... Oh, keep going. Put that line up the top. Yep, when she found the cranium of the skull, of the crystal skull inside, at the time of the discovery, the skull was lacking its jawbone, which was itself found three months later, about 25 feet away from where the cranium had been. Been found. That, that's just rude. Yeah, keep going. In it, why did you just <laughs> been found? Mitchell Hedges says that. I tried he, to help you out there and hold no, on the no, word. No, no, I was, uh, we're trying. Yeah. Mitchell Hedges says that he felt the object held some sp- special significance and claims that he didn't want to take the skull away from the site where it had been found and offered it to local priests, but that the Mayans had then given the skull back to him as a gift upon his departure, a dubious tale at best. Michael Mitchell Hedges was born in 1882 and died in 1959, and hence there lies the problem. Uh, He was known by his friends as a charming rogue. (laughs) The lovable rogue. Sounds a bit like Indiana. Indiana. At one stage of his career, he was even known as the British Baron von Munchausen. He was an explorer, an author, a gambler, and a soldier with Pancho Villa during the Mexican Revolution. He was undoubtedly a very colourful and quite roguish character. Roguish. There's a word we don't hear anymore. He sounds like Indiana Jones. Han Solo. Yeah, yeah. You know, he sounds Indiana like Jones, man. What, what is that actor's name? Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford. Played quite a few of those characters. Mm. You know, the lovable rogue. The lovable rogue, yeah. The rather impressive initials that he had next to his name actually resulted from him having joined the London Zoological Society and enabled him to enter the zoo on Sundays. Although I think that he may have actually founded the society to begin with. Oh, sweet. <laughs> He's a event. Hey, there's the... Mitchell Hedges' skull. There's the skull. Which the uh, Dan Aykroyd's crystal skull vodka, which we've got over there, mm-hmm. is modelled on that. Is it? Yes. Interesting. Yeah, it is. Yeah, if you oh, look, at, look at that and look at the skull, oh. it's actually a smaller version of the Mitchell Hedges' skull. There you go. Mm. Very cool. Mm. Many people found Mitchell Hedges' story to be questionable at the time, and evidence now shows that his tale of the skull's discovery was probably entirely fabricated. There are no known photographs of the skull among those that were taken during any of his Lubatan expeditions, and there is no record of Mitchell Hedges ever displaying or even acknowledging any existence of the skull any time prior to 1943. It is also interesting that when he took the skull on a trip to South Africa in 1947, Mitchell Hedges himself made this cryptic remark about the skull. We took with us the sinister skull of doom of which much has been written. How it came into my possession, I have reason for not revealing. 
because a dude made it for me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Possibly. I've got to, I've got to, I've got to keep Yet going. the story, he had always maintained that it was found by his stepdaughter. So why would he have reason for not revealing how he came by the object? Because it created intrigue. Yeah. Many believe that skull was placed there for the young girl to find, but if Mitchell Hedges did indeed put the skull in the temple for Anna to find in 1927 and just never let on about it until 1943, then where did he actually get it from prior to 1927? There are several other theories on how Mitchell Hedges came to be in possession of the skull, and a number of books have been written on the subject. Mm. One theory suggests that the skull is actually a 12,000-year-old artifact that has been handed down from an ancient civilization through the Knights Templar and eventually coming into the custodianship of the inner circle of the Mason's Lodge. Mitchell Hedges was, in fact, an inner circle Mason and may have acquired it through the lodge or possibly from a lodge gambling debt. Another theory is that it may have been looted from a pyramid on one of the Mexican expeditions, which is why he may not have wanted to reveal how he came by it, which that was one of my thoughts before yeah, when we were reading as he's nicked it. Maybe he's yeah. And he, he maybe he, he did hold onto it for a while because he couldn't. Yeah. Couldn't he, 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 he didn't he, want to tell anyone how he come by it. Cause someone might try and take it off him yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, probably had to kill some villagers to escape with it. Yeah, with yeah, their yeah. idol, yeah. you know, when he put the sandbag on the thing and took yeah, the crystal right. skull and ran out past the boulder. That's right, with a whip. That we should, we need. If we ever get sound buttons, we need that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely, you need the whip. The yeah. Whoosh, yeah, that could be actually, oh, dude. I'm pretty sure I had one of those read-along books when I was a child. Yeah. And when you turned the page, I went, it was the yeah. rip that, yeah. yeah. Oh, dude, you just took me back 30 years. Another theory is that it may have been looted from a pyramid and that we just read that. Yeah. Uh, another more fascinating theory holds that the Knights Templar had been in possession of it for centuries, but had previously moved the skull to Lubantun, 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 many years before to prevent it from falling into the hands of the Vatican and that Mitchell Hedges had been purposely sent to the site by the Freemasons to retrieve the artifact. And because we just had well, Damas on with the Knights Templar, you know, yeah, like but, you could join, yeah. that's not difficult to join together. No, it's not. It's not. It's not, but it, it comes down to a timeline because yeah. Knights Templar were with the Vatican there for quite a while. Yeah, they were. And then they got kicked out by the King of France. Then they came back. Yeah. Then they were, you know, whatever. Refer back to conspiracy and control. Damus lays the knife. It's all there. Damus is all across it better than what I bloody am. Yeah. Um, Let's move down. That's another good. That's another good picture of it. Is that, are you sure that's a picture of it? No, I'm just, see, I know the jaw is movable. Look at the teeth. And now go down to the next teeth. Yeah, maybe not. Could be one of the drawn-on ones. Yeah, it could be. Because that, that jaw does not look like it comes off. No, it doesn't. That's a 46B one. So, yeah, it's a different picture. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. In a somewhat less romantic series of events, however, it is believed that in reality, Mitchell Hedges purchased the skull in 1943 at an 
auction at Sotheby's Auction House in London. This has now been reasonably verified by documents found at the British Museum, which had in fact bid against Mitchell Hedges for the crystal artefact at the same sale. The Sotheby's records show that the artefact was actually purchased by Mitchell Hedges from one Sydney Burney, but the museum could only go as high as £340. Burney then sold the skull to Mitchell Hedges for 400 British pounds. So now the question now becomes, who was Sidney Burney and how on earth did the skull come into his possession? Unfortunately, no other records remain of anyone called Sidney Burney. Sounds like, sounds like a fake name. Like, yeah, yeah. Sidney Burney. Yeah. The thing is, you used to have to write your name on a, on a book back then. Your name's Sidney mm, Burney, I'm selling a skull. And, and back... It's it doesn't fit the time either, yeah. Sydney Burney. Yeah. I don't know. They seem to have more syllables in their name mm. than Sydney Burney. Mm. The enigmatic skull remains in the possession of Anna Mitchell Hedges, who even after all these years continues to maintain that the skull that she discovered the skull, even though the Sotheby's auction has been verified, and there is a considerable considerable reason to question that she was ever present at the Lubarton. Uh, expedition at all if there is any truth to the tale at all and she was present at the expedition then there is little excuse me doubt that Mitchell Hedges actually placed the skull in the temple for her to find and still often displays the skull on frequent final tours (laughs) and she now lives in Canada sounds a bit like John Farnham John Farnham's back Um, I'm pretty sure I saw a doco on this and I'm pretty sure this is pure memory. I could be making it up, but I'm pretty sure she even passed a lie detector test. So she believes. She believes, yeah. Her own lie so much. She's told the story, whether, you know, she's yeah. either told the story so many times that it's become fact, become fact, or maybe it did happen that she found it. Yeah. Mm. It's interesting. But yeah, I'd be John Farnan him the shit out of that. Yeah, you would. Um, you know, that's that's a good. You know, it's all a good story. And um, the thing is, it exists, right? The, apple, the crystal skull exists, and the apple never falls far from the tree. So, you know, the love lovable rogue lives on. Mm. Give me a second, there, my good man. You're all right, mate. Look, I think you know the crystal skull. That's another one of those things that echoes through eternity as well. You know, there's a reason that uh, they made an Indiana Jones out of it. Yeah, exactly. Moving right along. The Mitchell's Hedges skull is made of clear quartz crystal. Both cranium and mandible are perfectly proportioned and are believed to have been fashioned from the same solid piece of crystal. It weighs 11.7 pounds and is about 5 inches high, 5 inches wide, 7 inches long. Except for some very slight anomalies in the temples and cheekbones, it is an anatomically perfect replica of a human skull. Because of its small size and other characteristics, it is thought to bear a closer resemblance to a female skull than a male's, which has led many to refer to the Mitchell Hedges skull as she. In 1970, the Mitchell Hedges, I'm going to just say MH family from now on because Mitchell Hedges getting a bit old. Uh, family loaned the skull to the Hewlett. Oh, then they hit me with another one. <laughs> a Hewlett Packard Laboratories in Santa Clara, California, for extensive studies. 
HP is a computer equipment manufacturer and a leading facilities for crystal research. The studies were conducted by an art restorer named Frank Dorland, who oversaw the testing procedure, and the HP examinations yielded some quite remarkable results. Researchers discovered that the skull had actually been cleverly carved against the natural axis of the crystal to explain the axis or orientation of a crystal's molecular symmetry is an important aspect of crystal cutting and is something that is always taken into account by modern crystal sculptors because if they carve against the natural axis, the piece will usually shatter. Mm. This is true even when using lasers and other high-tech cutting methods and yet the skull is cut against the natural axis. Then, to exacerbate the issue of the object even further, the HP tests could find no trace of microscopic scratches on the surface of the crystal either. Such microscopic signs that would be a welcome indication that it had been carved with metal instruments or other tools. There's a couple of different versions yeah, in there. A couple of different skull versions. Hmm. Finally, after a series of exhaustive tests and microscopic examinations, Dolan's best possible hypothesis for the skull's construction was that it had been roughly hewn out by using something like diamonds and then the detail and cleanup work would have been very meticulously done using a gentle solution of silicon sand and water. But assuming that it could, have re could really have been done that way at all, which is the only possible way that anyone can think of. The entire somewhat exhausting job would have then required the combined and devoted services of an extremely gifted group of sculptors working in shifts and required a labour of continuous man hours totaling about 300 <laughs> years to complete. <laughs> Under these circumstances, experts believe that successfully crafting a shape of complex, a shape as complex as Mitchell Hedge's skull by hand is quite frankly impossible, as one HP researcher, researcher is said to have remarked, the damned thing just simply shouldn't exist. <laughs> what was that? Uh, what was that? What was that? Okay. Okay. I don't know. That came through the computer, I think. Anyway, okay. I was just worried it may have stopped. We just just checked the recording, make no, sure no, it's still we're, going. We're, we're all still going. Recording. Yeah. Um, oh, what was the gentleman's name? The engineer who measured all the Egyptian stuff, Chris Dunn. Chris Dunn. It'd be interesting for get Chris's hands onto it, you know. And yeah, it would be. Get his hypothesis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. The no. mysteries of the skull, however, do not end there. The skull has been fashioned in such a way that the zygomatic arches, the bone arches that extend along the sides of the front of the cranium are accurately separated from the skull piece and act as light pipes using the principles of optics to channel light from the base of the skull to the eye sockets. Wow. The eye so sockets are miniature concave lenses that transfer light either from the bone arches or from the source below into the upper cranium, while in the interior of the skull is a ribbon prism, prism and small light tunnels which greatly magnifies and brightens objects that are held beneath the skull. Interesting. Mm. Strange. I didn't know these details. Mm. 
Yes, interesting, I say. Strange powers and manifestations have also been attributed to the Mitchell Hedges skull. During his years of testing the skull at Hewlett-Packard, Frank Dorland says it sometimes displayed strange characteristics. Dorland says that often the eyes would flicker as though alive and still other observers have reported strange odours and sounds emanating from the object or Dorland's ass. It has been known to give <laughs> off sensations of heat and cold to those who touch it, even though the actual crystal has always remained at a constant physical temperature of 70 degrees Fahrenheit under all conditions and has also produced sensations of thirst and sometimes of taste in some instances. 70 degrees Fahrenheit. I would want to know what that is in Celsius. My phone's all the way over there. Look, I'm going to say it's around 30 degrees. Yeah. Because I was just, I, well, no, the thought I had is that what is, the, what is the ambient temperature of the planet? Because isn't the inside of the pyramids the ambient temperature of the planet? Yeah, but they would be, they, and they would be much lower than 30. They would be. Yeah, it's like 21 or 22. Somewhere or there. Because like, yeah, anyway. like un, the ground temperature is usually like here in Southeast Queensland is mm. usually about 19 degrees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Sorry, no, no, sorry. Never mind. It was good, good, yeah. good, good tangent to make good man under all conditions and as has also produced sensations of thirst, sometimes taste in some instances. Dorland and others also took strange photographs of the skull. <laughs> Sorry, I just got a I just got a picture in my mind. Strange photographs of the skull, no. like Dorland with no pants on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like with yeah, his so, nuts hanging selfie, over. It. Selfie type stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Looking into it very yeah. um Shakespearean-esque. The skull has also many times been reported to emanate a glowing aura. Other observers have reported that occasionally the skull will change colour. Sometimes the frontal cranium may become cloudy, while at other times it remains perfectly clear. Sometimes it will start off cloudy and then clear, clear right up as if, it were, as if the space within the skull had disappeared into an empty void over a period of five to six minutes. A dark spot often begins forming on the right side and slowly spreads until it has blackened the entire skull, then recedes and disappears as mysteriously as it came. Again, a different skull. Different skull, yeah. Still others, including Mitchell Hedges himself, have said that the skull holds a curse, and for this reason, it is also sometimes known as the skull of doom. Skull of doom. Mitchell Hedges is known to have referred to the skull as the embodiment of evil and said that some people who have laughed cynically at the skull have died, while others have become stricken and seriously ill. It is doubtful that any such curse actually exists, at least not one that will kill as it is believed to be the case with the infamous Hope Diamond. In fact, it may be quite the opposite. Mitchell Hedges was in possession of the skull for over 30 years with no harmful effects. And during that time, he actually survived eight bullet wounds, three knife attacks before dying at the age of 77. Gee, he was a busy boy. Eight bullet wounds and three knife attacks. Yeah, this guy lived an exciting life by the sounds of it. Mm. Oh, hang on. Let me just correct my posture. You're right, man. This is, this is a deep one. I'll take over for a little while after this one. Yeah, not a problem. 1959. 
One other interesting theory about the skull was put forth by Nick Nosserino in the book Mystery of the Crystal Skulls Revealed, which holds that the crystal mm. skull record oh. vibrations in the form of images of events that have occurred around them. In this way, they seem to work as video cameras of sorts, recording holographic scenes. The authors believe that the Mitchell Hedges skull is part of a set and that there are actually 13 such skulls that exist and the rest are still kept in a chamber beneath Potala Palace in Tibet. The general opinion of the book is that the skulls are actually of extraterrestrial origin. Unfortunately, none of this brings us any closer to solving the mystery of the mysterious object, for the questions still remain. Where did it originally come from and who made it? The Mitchell Hedges skull is not only is not the only crystal skull to have been found. There are two other skulls quite similar oh, to that's it. Some of the pictures we've been looking at. Ah, uh, yes. They're not clearly remarkable. Mm. These are known as the British crystal skull, the Paris crystal skull. Both artifacts are said to have been bought by mercenaries in Mexico in the 1890s possibly even as part of the same purchase. The British and Paris skulls are extremely similar in size and shape. In fact, so much so that some have speculated that one skull was used as a model to produce the others. Both skulls are made of clear but cloudy crystal and are not nearly as finely sculpted as the Mitchell Hedges skull. The features are only superficially etched onto the surface and appear somewhat incomplete. The British crystal skull is on display at at London's Museum of Mankind, while the Paris Crystal Skull is kept at the Trocadero Museum in Paris. Mm. Mm. Further examples of primitively sculpted skulls are a couple called the Mayan Crystal Skull and the Amethyst Skull. They They were discovered in the early 1900s in Guatemala and Mexico, respectively, and were bought to the US by a Mayan priest. The amethyst skull is made of purple quartz and the Mayan skull is clear, but the two are otherwise very alike. Like the Mitchell Hedges skull, both of them were studied at Hewlett Packard and they too were found to be inexplicably cut against the axis of the crystal. Okay. However, the only other known crystal skull that comes close to resembling the Mitchell Hedges skull is the one called the rose quartz crystal skull is it that one mm. ah yes it's got the eye sockets and mm. stuff like that mm. smaller though yes looks tiny looks like it's that, like an inch, inch and a inch half, and or, half so. or something like that um however the only other close to resembling the which was reported as being found near the border of the honduras and guatemala it is not clear in color and is slightly large what? And he's slightly larger than the Mitchell Hedges, but boasts a comparable level of crafts, craftsmanship, including a removable lower jaw. That's okay. not that's not that. That's not that. Must be this one. Uh, must be. Because that's that's a little pink skull. Yeah, it's tiny. And it just said it was. Yeah, okay. It says it's rose quartz, which I which I thought that was. Yeah. But it doesn't, doesn't have, have a removable jaw and it doesn't, no. uh, and it's tiny. Uh, so, anyway, and is also the case with Mitchell Hedges' skull. 
Many have attributed strange and psychic properties to the rose quartz skull. The history of the amethyst skull is unclear. It was reportedly part of the collection of crystal skulls that were in the possession of the Mexican president Diaz from 1876 to 1910. There are also reports that the skull was discovered in the Oaxaca, Oaxaca, Oaxaca. I'm sure there's a really good pronunciation from that, but we'll go with Oaxaca area in Mexico and was handed down from generation to generation through an order of Mayan priests. It is now believed to reside in San Jose, California, with a group of businessmen who have apparently offered it for sale. Regardless of any earthly or unearthly properties the crystal skulls may or may not possess, the question still remains, where did they come from? Done well, mate. There are countless theories on the subject. Some suggest that there are the creation of some higher intelligence. Others believe they were created by extraterrestrials or a legacy left behind from beings that lived in Atlantis or Lemuria. Wherever they came from and whatever their purpose, there can be no doubt that in the intriguing realm of ancient artifacts, there are few antiquities that are as thought-provoking or have brought more controversy and debate as these carved crystal skulls. The Museum of Man in London also contains a crystal skull of indeterminate origin that was purchased by them at the turn of the last century from an antiquity dealer in New York. The Man Museum skull is called the Aztec skull. It is interesting to note that the museum no longer keeps it on display, though it can be viewed by request. This is because several museum personnel, as well as many visitors, have claimed that the skull moves on its own within the glass case in which it is enclosed. Well, number one, well done, mate. That that was epic. Thanks, brother. I'm just going to take a little little um go to the little boys room while you read this next bit well we can pause for a second mate that's we have the ability man sure pause it up bro i'll start the stumble there at the end because i'm like and we're back mate just had a quick little break there that's okay little boys room uh well let's jump before before we we're sort of heading towards the end of this episode we just had a bit of a discussion during the quick break then However, don't, you know, in the sort of like the images coming out of the, because there was a lot in that crystal skull. Kudos, man. That was deep. And a lot of detail that I hadn't heard before, like the refraction through the skull and all that sort of stuff against the grain is very interesting as well. But I was thinking with the picture thing, Richard Patterson saw that crystal. He shone a torch through it and showed a picture on the wall. Right? Yeah, right. Yep. So we've actually got, yeah, we've actually got, two bits of corroborating evidence of a crystal being able to reflect picture. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, there's a lot of the, those sort of stories of crystal skulls and stuff watching you. You know what I mean? That's another thing that sort of gets thrown around as well. Uh, yeah, look, I don't know. Look, the Mitchell Hedges skull sounds dodgy. I'd say it come out of some collection. Where did it originally come from? I don't think we'll ever know, to be perfectly honest. But like, like Max says, it doesn't matter how Mitchell Hedges came about it. It still exists. It still exists. And it's still weird. And it's still weird. Yeah. That's all there is to it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll move on. The Nampa image. 
During the drilling of a well in Nampa, Idaho in 1889, a tiny figurine of baked clay was brought up amongst the debris churned out by the huge drill bit. The object is one inch long is a one-inch long figure of a man with one leg broken off at the knee, possibly from coming in contact with the drill bit. The possibility of the object being a hoax is extremely doubtful as it was extracted from a depth of around 300 feet, making the possibility of someone planting it there highly unlikely. Today, the controversial little object remains the property of Charles F. Adams and is still displayed in a glass case at Bosey's Park Museum in Boston. Scientists still cannot agree whether the object is genuine relic or merely a, a unique little oddity. Unique little oddity. Well, let's just look at the odds of that coming, like coming up the coming, drill holes. This like yeah, six inches, hundred and fifty mil yeah. approximately. Yeah, yeah. I don't know exactly, but they're not exactly large. So we we're going a depth of of what three hundred three hundred feet. feet down. Yeah, and a um you know across a large area mm. the the likelihood of drilling down onto that thing is so minuscule yeah like i don't know what i'm trying to say right now but i'm just i'm just looking at the facts that like how did it come back up the pipe you know what i mean i, mean, I, I was in drilling for a long time how, like how did, how did the mud it come comes over one piece mud comes over the shaker i mean this is old this is new school it's 1889 so i don't know how they did it but well I'm, i dare say that there are, it's 300 feet ain't that deep no like that's what's at 100 meters hmm. so it sounds like bore drilling yeah water, to me. water, water, water drilling yeah, yeah is what they're drilling for there so they for 100 meters deep are they using augers still you know, like the like, yeah, they might be like big, big, yeah, big augers, yeah. Because yeah, I mean, yeah, the the ass, like some of the heads we get, the pneumatic heads and shit these mm. days, man, it's not coming up in one piece. No, 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 it's no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that was that was an eight inch, ten inch auger that I used to do the fence, so mm. that was quite wide. Yeah, and so the, you imagine the dirt, the dirt does you would come up in clumps. It's like a conveyor belt yeah, of steel yeah, yeah. kind yeah, of thing, yeah, 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 like yeah, a big yeah. drill bit, really. Yeah, yeah. So if it's like that, yeah, I, I give it a little bit. Oh, oh, the rocket clock! The rocket clock's going off. What time is it on the rocket clock? What do you say, rocket clock? It's time to finish, you dickheads. Uh, all right. All well, right. let's punch on through. That's only a general guide. No, no. Rocket no. clock. Thank you, Rocket Clock, for reminding us. Yeah. Look, I don't know, man. Look, similar other finds have been made in other drilling operations. In 1952, a well driller in Whiteside County, Illinois, retrieved a copper ring and another copper device shaped like a boat hook from 120 feet below the surface in 1971. A drill bit brought up a bronze coin from a depth of 114 feet just out of Chillicothe in Illinois. You got to remember, what do we look? There are all these Idaho all this sort of stuff, this is all post-cataclysm, right? So when civilization existed on the Americas before that, it was buried mm -hmm. by 300 feet of crap, which is probably yeah. true. But all but all I think of, like, is is to bring up... More than just oops art, man. To bring up this stuff, it's... it's sh Surely that layer must be scattered with shit. You, you know what I'm so, saying? Yeah, if yeah. it's bringing up bits of copper and coin, like how many other coins, if it brought up one coin... How many other coins did you not are at see? that exact yeah, level scattered see? around? Yeah. And then what did you not see going through the dirt as well? You know what I mean? Like if it comes up in a clump. Oh, yeah. What didn't you see? What else came out? Yeah, what else came out? That's right. You know? Because, yeah, you noticed. Well, I mean, if you, here's an interesting perception to put it on a bit of a modern time. 
one of the things that uh, prospectors will do, mm. right, is they'll go out to WA to all these old mines from the 1800s and 1900s oh, yeah. and, and run scour over their tailings. scour their tailings with a metal detector yep. and find all sorts of stuff. Yeah, because our shit's so much better than That's what right. their shit was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, you know, do we, yeah, they, they drilled holes out there, run a metal detector over there and see what comes back. Mm. I mean, I, I think the, the pro- if it was a unique, merely a unique little oddity, these random dolls and coins and all this sort of stuff that's found. It's not though. Like there's a lot of this stuff found everywhere. Like there's been supposedly Roman coins found in Australia. You know what I mean? Like there's all this weird stuff that gets found. Yeah. And it's interesting. The Dogon. I wanted to get through the Dogon tonight and we'll see right. how far we go from there. But so are you big fella. The Dogon. We're an, uh, are an African tribe located mainly in the Bandiagara and Duin, Duinsa districts of Mali, West Africa. The tribe's population, about 300,000, being mostly heavily concentrated along a 200-kilometre stretch of escarpment called the Cliffs of Bandi- Bandiagara, in which they have managed to use to fashion some spectacular dwellings for themselves. In the early 20th century, two French anthropologists, named Marcel Griol and Germain Dietelin, guess we've had some words tonight, man. <laughs> spent, well done, mate. Spent a good deal of time living with the Dogon in order to study their ways. In 1930, after they'd been living with the tribe for some 15 years, four Dogon priests decided that it was time to take the Frenchmen into their confidence and invited the men to share in the tribe's most important and secret tradition. The tale was the secret Dogon creation myth about their sacred star, which they named Potolo. The star to which they were referring is Sirius, which is located some 8.6 light years from Earth. Sirius is also the brightest star in the night sky. The Dogon told the anthropologist that Sirius was the home of the gods who had made them and who had made them who they are. They told them that Sirius is the smallest and heaviest thing there is and that it was white in colour. They said that it had a companion star invisible to the human eye and that it moves around Sirius in an elliptical orbit that takes 50 years. They said Sirius was incredibly heavy and that it rotated on its axis and the further and they further described it as having a circle of reddish rays around it that is like a spot spreading but staying still. Dogon oral traditions are quite adamantly state that they have known for thousands of years that Jupiter had moons and Saturn had rings around it. Yeah, their dwellings are weird. The Dogon, I'd love to do a bit more of a deep dive into the Dogon. Like their, their cave dwellings are very interestingly built. Mm. Yeah, like that's the single picture. I've seen some of their stuff. It's very weird. Initially, the men did not see the astronomical importance of what they had been told by the tribe and, and only offhandly published the story in an obscure anthropological journal. However, sometime later, the information was noticed by several astronomers and deemed worthy of a further, more detailed investigation. What they discovered was, in fact, that Dogon had, in fact, accurately described the three principal properties of a white dwarf star, small, heavy, and white. And it also stated that Sirius is a binary star, both of which we now know as the Sirius system, to be. They are also absolutely correct in their knowledge of its companion rotation as Sirius B orbits Sirius A every 49.9 to 50 years. Their description of reddish rays is also quite remarkable, as this space telescope photograph reveals and perfectly describes... Oh, sorry. Missed that. Uh, reveals and perfectly describes the DNA-type pattern that is made by the elliptical orbit of the two stars rotating around each other 
as they travel through the sky. Yeah, right. Look at that. Yeah. And the reddish, the reddish mm. haze. Isn't that fascinating? The five-pointed star as well, like that's a six-pointed star. It's interesting. The Dagon people also use an extremely unorthodox calendar that is based on a 50-year cycle. This cycle is uniquely unusual because it does not follow any cycles coinciding with any movements of our Earth, Moon, or Sun, but instead is based wholly on the rotation movements of Sirius B. In fact, the entire Dogon culture is based around the 50-year cycle of Sirius B. The Dogon people of pre-1930 had no telescopes or real written languages. How is it they were accurately able to describe things we still only possessed a very limited knowledge of? Where did they get their information? The Dogon repeatedly say that they were taught these things many, many years ago by their gods who visited them from their home planet, which orbits Sirius B. The Dogon also described them as being amphibious creatures. It's the gun gun. Shout out to Bo. What have you got to say about that? I don't know, man. I, th- I think we might. No, no, no. My one out of all that, I've got no issues with it, but they orbit Sirius B. Now, Sirius B orbits Sirius A. Mm. So at some point, their planet has to come between Sirius A and B yeah. if they're orbiting it. Yeah. I don't know if that's possible. That's some interesting planetary dynamics. They would have to orbit both of them. Like, yeah, outside yeah. outside the orbit of Sirius B mm. is where the planet would have to be orbiting. So it would be orbiting Sirius B, but it would be orbiting Sirius A as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe. I mean, if Sirius B and Sirius A are going like that, the planet could be going like this. Yeah, around the outside of yeah, yeah, both yeah. of them. Yeah, 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 yeah. The Dogon's interesting, man. You know I mean? How How is it? It's, I mean, it's such an anomaly. Yeah. How did they come across that kind of information, information have it in ground in in their culture and it, and it, it only makes yeah. sense that what they're saying is true that's right how else would you know exactly. how can you know no it's it's impossible yeah it's impossible and especially at the time like it's pre-1930 so information itself is so limited at that time yeah there, there was no way there was no way for them to know no like that's right. there's no plausible way in the world for them to understand that information that's right and i don't know it doesn't say that but we didn't look like we understood that information till we had a look yeah and if we did it would have been a very limited few people that's right who weren't just traveling around to the dogons that's right to to impart that knowledge on them Mm. in such a way that they ingrain it into their into their culture yeah it doesn't make sense as to how the hell they could have possibly got hold of that info mm. so yeah it's weird unless it's just all one big crazy coincidence yeah you know, maybe they made it up looking up in the sky and it's just all so is so yeah it's just it's all it's all coincidental that everything comes to 100 million 300 million 12 thousand like these numbers keep repeating themselves and repeating themselves and repeating themselves <laughs> man so yeah no that's that's some crazy info man Look, I think we might leave it there. We definitely will. I think we'll leave it there, mate. Let's... Leave it there while we're fresh. Yeah. Well, mate, another very interesting episode. Uh, loving the new camera. Loving the new yes. setup. Thank uh, you, new camera. And uh, yeah, let us know what you think. That was a, you pushed through. That was that was mainly you, man, about the crystal skulls. Like a lot of that detail, I didn't know. 
yeah, my takeaways tonight, the Droper stones are very interesting. I want to see photos of those. Mm. Uh, Just, no, the whole Droper story. Yeah, the whole Droper story. The and the Down in yeah. China, in yeah. the cave. Are they skeletons. still a tribe? Blah, blah, blah. That's, that whole story, that needs deep diving. Yeah. That, that's a whole episode. Yeah. We, we need someone who has come on. Please let someone, China's let someone in. They've still got it. Yeah. Someone's done a Someone's report done on some it. more work on it. Yeah. We, we might put, I'll put the Draper Stones. I'll get me book out, mate. I'll get me put book the Draper out again. Stones in there. My put good the Draper man. Stones in that book when we finish off. I don't have much more to say about tonight. The Crystal <sighs> Skull sort of, it went on that one. And I understand why because it's so important. Uh, and I wonder, the, probably the only thought I didn't say about that was like imitation is the purest form of flattery. Mm. So all these other crystal skulls, you know, when they someone might have seen that one, and they all sort of come from South America-ish, don't they, so yeah. theoretically? So someone had been taken to see the good ones, yeah, and then it spent, you know, well, just like the Ica stones, yeah, you know, could have, yeah, imitated, because uh, some of those ones, you know, they look quite handmade, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. well, you can understand how they That's were right. quite easily handmade yeah so yeah it's i don't know man it's a weird one but that's you know that that was a great good good bunch of topics tonight mm. and and um the right information on the right areas yeah you know the dogon the dopers the eco stones eco stones weren't tonight Draper. crystal skulls mm. Draper stones mm. the, the, the problem is is that the pitch is not and obviously it's the reason we do this. And this is, you know, final thought. It doesn't make the picture more clearer. No. No, exactly. Mm. It, it, it only muddies the waters. Mm. But, it, but it, I guess by muddying the waters, it clouds the aura of, of transparency that is around the paradigm also. It's like, because mm. the paradigm doesn't try to explain these things. It excludes them yeah. and just puts them out there as oddities. Because, because they don't make sense to the picture. Or fakes or, yeah, exactly. So I believe you're going to leave us with some warrior wisdom. Well, I just, I just had the feeling. Yeah, I, saw, I saw that. You were just like, just came to you. Well, I wondered what the, what the wisdom book had for us. I mean, by, is- by the time this one comes out, you guys will have known that Dr. Bodie Sanders is now a friend of the podcast and that is excellent. And he's such a cool guy, as you guys would have heard by the time this one comes out. And uh, he was blown away uh, that I did this to him and it worked on our conversation. Yep. So let's see. Let's see if the let's continue the tradition. Let's see, man. Reflect on this. Efforts and enemy, enemies? Efforts and enemies, if left unfinished, can both ravage you like an unextinguished fire. I think that's... Do you know what I got from that? We just got to keep going, man. That's <laughs> just well, got to keep. What going. What did you say before picking up the book? Yeah, you said this doesn't help. No, it just muddies the water further. Yeah, it just keeps the fires burning. Yeah, you know, which is the reason we do it. The fires can burn you out. Don't burn the candle at both ends. That's the moral of the story. Mm. Thanks, man. All right, Thanks, thank guys. you. Appreciate Thanks, people. That. Good night. Peace. Talk soon, guys. Look after yourselves.